Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is Chris Hughes, owner of Artifact. Chris Hughes is an Omaha native who started Artifact in his basement in 2010. A bag, luggage and home goods manufacturer, Artifact's retail store and studio is located in Midtown Omaha in Nebraska. Chris's finely crafted products for men and women have been featured in various media including the New York Times, GQ, Popular Mechanics and Garden Design and offer a lifetime guarantee or, as Chris says, buy it once. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Stuart. So to set the scene for our conversation, uh, could you describe your business, Artifact? What is your business? Yeah, uh, so Artifact, we design and make aprons, carry goods, leather accessories, and the common thread is uh, utility. They've just got a clean look and uh, they're built to last. And then we recently, within the last two years, we opened a brick and mortar retail store and that's been a, a concurrent adventure. So you founded Artifact in 2010, and you've said it was born out of, because of, the Great Recession. So paint this picture. What do you mean by that? I was working um, for a tech startup that was based in Atlanta, and I was flying back and forth. And we could tell that the economy was starting to to turn. And um, long story short, I lost my job because I wasn't willing to relocate and I was confident that I could find other employment, but that proved not to be the case. So um, while I was writing cover letters and doing job search, I was just keeping occupied with my hobbies, uh, one of which is just making things. I've always been a bit of a tinker and a craftsperson, and I was in my basement making goods with out of wax canvas. Some of it was repurposed, some of it I acquired through other means. And at that point, Etsy had come out. It was fairly new, and I set up a store, and people started buying my products. Um, I had a placeholder job at the time, and uh, within 10 months of working at that job, I was at a point where I, I needed to quit it because I had to devote all my time to growing Artifact, which had become this brand. So you've just leaped through 10 months. You've talked about being in this um, this kind of startup role that wasn't necessarily fulfilling. You then uh, create this Etsy shop and, and then you're developing a product which takes off and you have to quit and, and go into that full time. What was happening? I mean, that's a pretty astonishing meteoric transition, right? Over 10 months. So what were you making and, and what made that catch fire? Oh, it was just a, it was a manic grind. Um, I had kids at that point and my daily uh, ritual was uh, I had to be I was doing a customer support at PayPal at the time they they had one of these like hiring roundups where they uh, just it was just like a herd of unemployed people and they gave us a spelling test and an internet proficiency test and and they told me I was overqualified but I, I begged them I said please I needed health insurance I mean I was I was in dire straits so um so I'd get up and I was on the floors at 6.45 in the morning with a headset helping people with password recovery or things like that. And then I'd get off about 3.30 and I'd, you know, do my dad stuff. And then I would work on artifact stuff until about oh, maybe 1, 1.30 in the morning and then, you know, just hit play and repeat and just kept doing it over and over again. And 
I wasn't getting traction initially. It was, it was, uh, there was a tipping point where, um, an influencer in New York, he wrote, uh, men's fashion and style. And he had a blog of his own at that time. If you remember blogs, he uh, liked my lunch tote and made some favorable comments about it. And it, and it just created a groundswell. There, there were people that were listening to him, some of which, you know, were like New York times and things like that. And so, um, they were kind of following his following his cadence to see what he was interested in. And, um, it just, it was just really good timing. I, this was before the maker movement really was coming about and I was, uh, kind of an early adopter into it. And so, um, I was producing products and and creating new stuff. I was also writing about my discoveries at the time I was buying refurbished or I was buying, uh, just equipment out of warehouses and buildings that hadn't been used and I would refurbish it and talk about it and then put it into my production line and it was just it was a pretty crazy time. Uh, what advice do you have for people wanting to start a new blog, Chris? A new blog? <laughs> just joking. <laughs> uh, no one reads. I, I made videos recently um, and they were like three, four minutes and some pretty savvy marketing people said, yeah, those are really nice videos, but no one will watch them because people tap out at about a minute and a half. So I loaded them onto Vimeo and, and YouTube. And after several months, I looked at my analytics and they were right. People people backed out at about a minute and a half. And so if you can't even sit and watch a, a well-produced video for two or three minutes, how do you expect someone to take 10 or 15 minutes to read a piece of writing? What were you making? Um, how, what were you making? How were you making it? What was the ethos behind the design behind what you were making that caught this New York influencer's attention and made you made you say, oh, this is the moment. Now, now I break free. Well, so sounds like there's two parts to that question. The first part is like, what was I making? Um, I was scratching my own itch. I was designing products that I needed. Like, for example, I carried my lunch every day to PayPal and I needed a lunch tote. I looked online and there were just like these like Oh, bento boxes and child things. And then there were like other types of lunch carriers and totes, but they were using synthetic materials. They were in colors that I didn't like. And as, as you've come to know, Stuart, I'm a particular individual. So I just thought I'll just make it. Um, and then I was making tote bags that like I felt were not so feminine, you know, like that I could carry as a diaper bag and do and use and that were in the colors and hues and textures. I was using really nice leather and I'm still am, you know, and hand hammered copper rivets. And then so the 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 actual moment, that impetus where I realized that like I'm gonna have to take this entrepreneurial leap and do this was it was just this perfect storm where within like oh like 14 hours, like Gizmodo and Uncrate did a product feature on the lunch tote. And it was really funny because I was using PayPal as my payment gateway on my website. So I'm on phone support and I'm just like, I mean, racking up these sales, you know, 14,000, 15,000. And then I started doing, I took my 15 minute lunch break and I did a little bit of math and realized, you know, the amount of man hours it would require to service this like 400 plus bag backlog that was accruing, it wasn't going to get done. So I got up from my cubicle and I walked to my supervisor and I said, look, I don't, I don't usually do this, but I've got to go. And she's like, are you putting in your two weeks? And I said, no, I have to leave right now. <laughs> <laughs> and then security came and took my badge and they escorted me out of the building. That's protocol. I wasn't being weird or anything, but, uh, 
And then that was that. More than usual. No, not any more than usual. But <laughs> but there it was. It was like that Deborah Winger moment in uh, Officer and a Gentleman where she's carried away and I was Deborah Winger. And Artifact was my <sighs> Richard Gere. Love lift us up <laughs> yes. where we belong. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's my story. It was the 100th show last week or the yeah, the 100th show. And um, this is the first time I've been able to reference Officer and a Gentleman and uh, Deborah Winger. And, oh, I'm and, sure we'll get some more obscure references. Let's, let's totally aim for those. <laughs> So there you are. Wow, what an inflection point, right? It was terrifying. So talk a little bit more about what goes into this decision to quit your job, especially after the recession, and what happens next? I don't like taking risks, you know? Like, there's just... There's so much chaos in the world. I'm always trying to make things like I'm trying to iron out wrinkles and just try to live in some sort of like little bit of harmony. And so entrepreneurship to me, it never appealed to me. Um, but here I was in this like turnbuckle and I had this placeholder job. I spoke with my wife about it and it was really she helped to nudge me in the sense that she's like, Chris, this isn't really like there's not really opportunity here for you. So it's not like you're an architect and you went to school for years and you're at this firm and you have this rapport with all of your colleagues and then you you absolutely have to you just you're waking up at night dreaming about making wax canvas bags. Um, I had I had a real boilerplate job. And so it was easier to do that then, you know, and in these years that passed, a lot of people have approached me to talk to me about entrepreneurship and and I'll always ask them. I'm like, well, what? I'll ask the individual, what are you doing? And, and and they all have really, most of them have really good jobs. And I just think, just don't quit your day job, you know, just grind it out, you know, put, put 20 hours a week into this and see if you can get traction until you can get like proof of concept. But for me, I just, I wasn't sitting flush with this amazing job. So it wasn't as difficult of a decision as other people would make. So just chatting with Dusty Davidson, the co-founder of Flywheel, he, in some ways, perhaps a little self-deprecatingly, but in some ways suggested that it was previous experiences, some some negative 
experiences with coaches that he didn't particularly like drove him to create the kind of job that he wanted to see in the kind of organizational culture that he wanted to manifest. And so in some ways it was driven out of or driven by something. It seems in some ways that you're describing that you didn't feel that there were that many good options where you were, but you did love what you were doing with creating these products. Well, I mean, I've always wanted to fit in and that's, uh, that's, you know, that ever since I was a child, but I've always, for one reason or another, have been a black sheep. So, like, I tried to get, like, jobs. I tried to work at Mutual of Omaha. I tried to work at these places. And I just, I just don't interview very well. And I don't, I, I, um, I don't overstate my abilities. If you ask me, have you done this before? I'll say, I haven't, but I'm, I'll give it my best, you know? And that's just not really the tone of, like, how people, and, and now that I have a business and I've, interviewed people and hired people, I'm continually made aware of the fact that people just overstate their abilities all the time. And I, I still wouldn't interview well, <laughs> even knowing this, I still probably couldn't do it. So if artifact implodes, um, I just, I have a hard time explaining like what I do. Like I just, I problem solve and, and, and I don't, you know, I'm not going to pontificate about it. I'm not going to elaborate. I just, I look at what the scenario requires and then I just do it. Like I come from a line of people that just roll up their sleeves. And so here I was in a situation where no one was going to give me any favors and I had to do it for myself. And then like, so here we, I start bringing on people and then I'm creating this culture built around like, how would I like to be treated? That's really how it is. And and it's been hard over the last nine and a half years because it was very bohemian. It was very artisanal, artsy, very uh, laissez-faire. But unfortunately, to a degree, I've, I've learned the hard way that that doesn't scale. And so now that we have so many people, you know, that depend on me to make good decisions, we have to find some sort of a middle ground where what is the ethos of what I do? Like, what is the spirit of this, the creativity and the energy and how do we make decisions that are, you know, based on metrics and other things? I can't shoot from the hip all the time anymore. So let's, I certainly want to talk about this idea of scale because you've had opportunities to scale and you have on balance decided, no, I'm, I'm not going to scale. And I, and I certainly want to talk about that. But before we get to that, you also mentioned this ethos that's important. Tell me more about what is this philosophy that you have behind the products that you make, the designs that you conceive, and the brand that is Artifact? I mean, it's not complex or elaborate. I, I, I like, I'm a tactile person. I like the way things smell, the way things feel. I like the, and, and it coincides with quality. When I was a little boy and I'd go to the shoe store, even before I even saw the price, I would gravitate to the shoes that were the most expensive the hand of them, the build, that was just, that's how I operate. And so unfortunately it's, it, you know, it's oftentimes neurotic, but I just, I look at the way things are made and I can see how they could be done better. And, and so as long as I have a company, I would rather be, you're going to work hard regardless when you own your business. So I'd rather spend my time focused on trying to make remarkable products instead of just average products that just, you know, float around with all the other commodities in the world. Does that explain it? I think that's a very hard thing to describe though, right? 
quality. It's really easy to describe quantity. But quality is such a subjective... And, and that's and it's funny you mention that because that's a challenge we have right now. Like, um, And I can probably go into this in more detail in the conversation. But for things that are intuitive to me aren't necessarily intuitive to other people. Like, Because I, I get really focused on what I like and I go deep. Um, but that's a hard part right now is, as we're so e-commerce driven, how do I communicate the value of this product when they can't touch it or smell it? And that's been an ongoing challenge because... I continually take for granted, like somebody the other day, they, um, they were like, well, what is webbing? And I was like, oh, and maybe a lot of people didn't know what that was. But for me, like that's, you know, it's a, it's a woven strap material. Uh, and, and, uh, uh, and that's, that's where it's, for me, it's about getting a lot of, um, outside counsel as we continue to grow. And, you know, as we, you know, we've been selling on Amazon and stuff and see these marketplaces, these people, the customers that we interface with now, they're not like on the inside scoop that have read these blogs and understand the tanneries that I'm buying my stuff from They're They, they, not that they don't like quality. They just, they, they there needs to be um, more of an educational component that I've had in the past so that people understand where their money's going. So I, I think this is a really important opportunity for me to ask you to, to share what quality means. And in many ways, I wonder if for the average landscape of consumers, quality sometimes um, is just a euphemism for price or brand name or recognition. Sometimes quality is, is really surface level. But right there, you've just mentioned selecting the tannery that you go to for your for your leather and I, I would imagine that many people aren't thinking at that layer below layer below layer that you are of what constitutes quality from craftsmanship design materials sourcing sustainability all the way through to the finished product and di you know its distribution I, I bet many people aren't thinking about that so so yeah for sure unpack what quality is one way to explain it is like a lot of times, like with product development, people have, um, they, they, they come at it with a budget in mind. And so if you know that your product is going to hover in this price point, you're going to select your materials and source according to that. You know, you're, you're, you're not going to go with solid brass hardware. You're going to go with a plated hardware. You, you're going to go with a bonded leather versus a full, you know, top grain leather. And so with me, like, I think when I conceive a product, I think about all, all the best materials that I could put towards it. And a lot of times you, you create this object and, and then you realize that like, okay, I don't think the world's ready for an $800 backpack. So you have to table that idea or you find ways that you can come up with a solution, um, that scratches that itch, but doesn't compromise. Not everything needs like, the absolute finest materials, you know, you, you, you don't, you don't need every door handle to be made out of titanium, you know, or stuff like that. So there are times where the material, and I'm also very into, um, historic builds and just, and stuff that's vintage. And so they're oftentimes utilizing materials that maybe aren't looked at as often as today. Today is very much about, um, weight and polymers and things like that. And, and sometimes I will, go with a material that maybe is slightly heavier, but it just feels so good. You know, brass, 
when it's been used, it just feels like butter in my hand. It just has this feel. So back to this question about quality, how do I define it? I, you just, I don't know. I mean, it's, 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 sometimes it's tacit. It's, it's, it's comes from just touching stuff. Like my, my son the other day, he's just like, how come you just sit there with your guitar and you don't always play it? And I'm like, I don't need to play it, Kit. It just, I just like to hold it. It just feels so good to hold it and to smell it, to smell the mahogany come up through the sound hole. Even after I've owned this for years, for it still to produce that smell, that fragrance, that it's its own point. I'll play it here in a moment, but right now I'm enjoying just holding it. And it, it, it's just an approach. I don't know. And not everyone's like that. Some people, you watch the way somebody shuts their car door. I mean, they, they probably don't care about that car as much as I do. <laughs> uh, and, and so to arrive at a, for me to arrive at a definition right now as to what quality is, I guess quality for me, I mean, one way just out of the gate is like, if I see something and I can't not touch it, if I, if my hands are just touching it without even like asking permission, it's probably good quality. I just, I just know it. I just, it's, it's, it's beckoning for me to interact with it. How do you make the choices that you have to make that balance this overwhelming drive towards quality with some of the other value sets you have, such as sourcing within America, for example, while also having to run a business and, for example, knowing that a concept you have in mind, like an $800 backpack, maybe that one has to wait a while because the market won't bear your philosophy around around its production. What are the kind of decision-making filters that you have to go through and what have been some i guess some compromises you've had to make oh i mean <laughs> i continually i mean i have a propensity for tangents um and if and if i don't keep myself in check i can just get caught up in what my r&d mode um that can be infinite i i police myself really i understand to a degree that Artifact has to make money and I have to have some sort of a, there has to be a middle ground. There has to be a balance there. I don't know. We've been hovering in this area, like with some of the categories that we've been in where I haven't really been challenged too hard with it. Right now we're really interested in aprons. And I was just telling someone who's advising me, I said, there's really like, if you come down it, there's really, there's what, like two or three critical design elements to an apron. So like, why are you going to chintz out on those? You know, <laughs> like, 
it's not like um, the console to your sports car where you have all these materials and technologies. Like you're going to have to make a lot more decisions than I have to make. Um, but I, I would like to think as we evolve as a brand, like we can build a clientele that is ready to see like some artifact Louis Vuitton style luggage or um, an absolutely kick-ass camera bag for like Leica cameras that you don't have to buy in Europe. You can buy it here. Uh, you know, that, that'll be fun, but you got to walk before you can run. And you got to know what your customer is, what their threshold is at that point. So why don't we pick up the thread a little bit with this journey to where Artifact is now. So the Great Recession was a catalyst for Artifact's founding, and it's grown since then. You've had to make some tough choices, I think, along the way. There have been opportunities to take different turns and you've had to make a choice about which route you've taken. Do you scale up? Do you uh, maintain a certain presence in a certain market um, on a certain manufacturing uh, approaches? So, so maybe describe the journey a little bit over the last several years to today. Uh, the last nine and a half years has been a continual uh, moving target. Uh, the, the methodologies that we used that were successful two years ago are irrelevant now for the most part, you know, like I said, we were talking about blogs earlier, like that's how I got a lot of followers early on. Um, search engine optimization was, um, just a different animal back in 2010 than it is now. Um, there's just so many people in that space. So many people just even in e-commerce, you know, every, every city has a guy who's like, or a gal in their twenties that's making leather goods. And so from a business side, all of that encroaches in this pool, this market share. So, and the desire to buy local keeps getting stronger and stronger. So, um, and that's great. But if you're trying to sell internationally and you want to sell to people in Spain, they've got local artisans that are making products. And, um, in even just like some of my own designs that I created that didn't exist prior to me, they're ubiquitous in the world. Now you can go on to Amazon and look at lunch totes that are very much inspired by my design but they're uh, an eighth the price. <laughs> we have, we're scaling every year. Every year we grow, but we're growing organically. But it's hard because as we get bigger and bigger, we still have to be nimble so that we can zig and zag when we need to. Um, like trade shows, those used to be a big thing. Now they're not. They're not. Retailers aren't really going to them like they used to. They're seek, just like myself, we have a retail store now and I scout product via the internet, just like anyone else. Um, there's just so many people like just even just like the race to the bottom where, you know, you open up that lid. It's like, well, you're going to start discounting stuff. Well, once you start discounting, you don't get to step away from that. And so how do you create value with your brand, but also create a call to action and incentivize people? You know, if you've been making the same product in similar colors for years, like what, what's the urgency people, you know, so there's, there's always that type of stuff. How do you, how do you keep it fresh? How do you stay interested? How do you evolve? How do you know when it's time to maybe move on from a style, a skew, a category and start exploring other ones? A lot of it's still by feel. It's just keeping your ear to the ground. Um, but more and more of it's just, it's based on analytics. Um, you let 
people's interest vote on where you're going to put your time and resources? Well, thinking about time and resources, there there was a time when major retailers like Barney's came to you. I don't know when this was, a few years ago. And it was in the beginning. And, and, and that's a bit of a misnomer to say that, like, I turned these people down. I mean, I mean, it is and it isn't. The reality was, oh, like QVC, they wanted me to sell my product on there. And there's a couple things. One, I don't like that format. That isn't – I've never been interested in shopping on that station. Uh, and two, they needed product in, in so, so much in such, so little time. There was no way I could do that without outsourcing that. And that's a whole different kettle of fish that I have not taken the time to do my due diligence with. It's not that I wouldn't do it, but I was pretty confident that if with the time, the time constraints on all of these quote opportunities, they just didn't bode well for me. Like I'm methodical. I want to think about what I'm doing and I couldn't say yes to any of those deals without feeling like the outcome wouldn't diminish what my product offering was in some way. And back to my point that I made earlier, I'm in the business of creating extraordinary products. I'm not interested in creating average products. So, for example, borrowing a little bit from then Barnes and other retailers coming to you, really the, in, in many ways the question is, to what degree did you decide that nothing you were going to do was going to be mass produced. There was always going to be a craftsman-like, an individual human's attention to the products, and you were not going to sacrifice that for the efficiencies of scale of quantity and speed. Well, I'm not convinced that you can't produce at that level. I'm just saying that I can't produce at that level right now. As And I've grown so much in the last 10 years, the things that I've learned, um, whether it's uh, just the interpersonal nuances of managing people or (laughs) still learning, uh, or just operations, logistics, marketing, all of that. Um, So it's not to say that I couldn't have people domestically helping me produce the goods. It's just been easier for me to go back to the drawing board and just hire more people and just build it in-house where we have top-down control of that. I know, I see every step of that, and I have more peace of mind that way. It's just how I've been doing it. I, it's not the way or the only way. It's just it's worked to this point, uh, and we still have been growing every year. So, Do you ever see yourself as an antidote to the explosive growth of entrepreneurship in the virtual and the technological fields? And not suggesting that the work you do doesn't have technological uh, components and, and facets to it. But your product is very much one where, as you say, you feel physically drawn to it. Your hands move to the quality of something, which is not true of someone perhaps designing an app or an algorithm or some other virtual platform. Do you, do you see what you're doing as some sort of antidote, some sort of human counterpoint to that side of the I mean, it's the antithesis of that model on many, many levels. Many of the people, before they ever even get off the ground, they're already like building in what their exit strategy is going to be like. Not that to say I'm going to go down with the ship, but my my path has required a long-term vision um, that could take years, if not decades, to actualize what Artifact is to become. And... We don't, not to say that we don't have 
constraints or or or, or limitations in the sense like tech is is has always been a race. It's a race to market. They they've got it. it. They just they have to execute so fast. Whereas we can take a minute to like really think about this, you know. Uh, and I like that pace more. I also don't like just the transient quality of technology. Like somebody builds an app and it's obsolete in like ten months. It's here's a funny story, and it's it's this was a younger Chris, but um, this guy uh, Adam at Apple. He had emailed me years ago, and he's like, he's like, hey, I, I really love we we love your products here. Um, would you ever consider making products that support our technologies? And I replied to him that I wasn't particularly interested in it because your products change all the time, and when I make something, I want it to last forever. Uh, and he replied, "Well, I have to respect that, I guess." <laughs> <laughs> but that's just a, that's just some of the silly shit that I do. <laughs> I and I think back now and I'm like maybe I would have had more of a conversation now, but I don't know. I mean, I st- part of me still feels that way. Like it would have been an iPad case that was made out of leather and it would have been nice leather and it's like, okay, so once their next iteration comes out, what are you going to do with that thing? That bothers me. It just I can't help that. It bugs me. Like I just and and a lot of people are like, oh, I want my bag to have this for my phone. I'm like, your phone. Your phone. Today's phone. What? What is that? Is it the size of a pack of cigarettes now? Is it the size of a chiclet? What is it? You know, like, what? what is it tomorrow? You know, like, I like it when people come in my shop and they've been carrying a bag for like eight and a half years. And it's just starting to break in. Like, I like that. Tell me about your childhood, Chris. Um, I'm an only child. Uh, I grew up in a modest ranch house. Um, my parents worked a lot. I had. I was of that era where it's like you come home when the lights are when the street lights turn on, and um, I was pretty free spirited. Uh, no was kind of just a suggestion to me, uh, so. <laughs> Uh, there were consequences with that, I guess. Um, I, I don't know. What What do you want to know about it? Where were you raised? Well, I grew up by Methodist Hospital, and uh, went to Swanson Elementary, and then later um, Westside Middle School and Westside, and just skateboarded everywhere. I was just, I don't know, did normal stuff. Went to the movies. Um, I I learned to be pretty independent though. Like there were there were 
we had some neighbor girls, but they weren't super interested in playing G.I. Joe with me and stuff like that. So I just, I don't know, I just imagined a play kind of started pretty early with me. Uh, played guitar, um, skated a lot. I loved, I loved music. I remember when I was really too young to know this, I discovered that you could go down to the corner of uh, 84th and Dodge and take the two bus downtown to the old market back when it was kind of rough and tumble still. And Got to see people loitering down there and punks and uh, going to earlier versions of Drastic Plastic and buy records. And that really, I think that was kind of the building blocks of like who I was about to become. Like DIY ethic really came through not only with skateboarding, but also with music and helped to kind of inform me and helped to foster this entrepreneurial spirit that has guided me for one reason or another. So this is a great segue into music and the legendary Beep Beep. Tell us more about your musical career. Timing worked out for me um, in that regard, too. We, I would, Like I said, I went to Westside, and we were hanging out with some kids um, that were at prep high school that became the nucleus of what was Saddle Creek Records. And so, um, you know, and I played around with those guys in one way or another, um, had a couple bands on the label and at probably like the apex of like Saddle Creek, uh, the band that you mentioned, Beep Beep, we got signed and that was a great time for music in general. Like we had label in Japan, label in Europe, we toured all over the world and just, it was crazy. You know, I was in my late twenties and just <laughs> having a good time uh and then you know it's like it runs its course like our first our first record sold thousands of copies and our second record we we definitely went on a tangent it was pretty fun to make that record but it sold hundreds of copies and so we had to i had to had some explaining to do i was married newly married at the time and i just could tell that there i was running out of running out of rope with that one and needed an adult job <laughs> well, let's not get to the adult job side of things too quick, then. So, tell me about some of these experiences. Well, like, you know, how did the band form, and and what are some of the terrible stories that you shouldn't say out loud on air? I don't remember a lot of that stuff, like how it came about. We just a lot of the like with Saddle Creek, it was a little bit incestuous, where people played in each other's bands and stuff like that. And I really bonded with this guy Eric Benberger, and we played, um, and he, we co-song wrote a lot. And we were in a band called Gabardine. That's like, I think it's like it was crazy. They were like re-released something or did something for twentieth anniversary, and I, I felt super old when Saddle Creek emailed me that because um, that's two plus decades. But um, you know, we just. It was timing again. I mean, we worked hard. We played hard. Um, we we shopped our, our demo out, and there were other labels that were interested at the time. Um, but no, like touring, uh, God, England was fun. We about almost got kicked in Liverpool. Some soccer thugs um, tried to work us over and played in Bristol in this place that looked like it had been bombed. Well, it was bombed, I'm sure, and it just didn't recover. My mouth, the mic kept shocking me that I had to take my shoe and my sock off and put my sock over the microphone just so it would stop. But I mean, we played in all different places. We play in some venues, like we toured with The Faint, which was like a really popular band. And uh, like we play like 2,500 people 
And then, like, maybe we go and headline and play bottom of the hill in, like, uh, San Francisco or something like that and play to, like, you know, 150 people. But it was it was all good. I mean, I liked a small audience. We could get intimate with them. And there was a lot of improvisation going on. Just – we were just having fun. I mean, I, I didn't – I'm – I probably should have been more mature. I mean, because I was in my 20s at the time. But I just – for me, it was just, like, they're just – I guess as I think about it now, I've, honestly, I haven't even thought about this stuff in a long time. You're you're like digging up stuff that I, d- I just don't think about very often. But it, that spirit came back into Armored Artifact because there. I mean, if you talk to people that have worked with me, I, I'm ideas just flow around. I'm usually running around in a manic state, um, just just being crazy, basically. <laughs> but that's just it. I mean, you've you've got to have that fluidity to allow that the dots to connect, you know, they, it's hard to get them to connect. If you like limit yourself or put these parameters around what you are and who you are and what you're going to be and what you're going to do. It's my day. I wake up every morning and I have this idea of what my day is going to be. And it never ends that way. Never. And I don't mind that. There are some through lines here from your childhood. You're talking about being an only child, lots of friends, but you would be fairly autonomous and independent. No was a suggestion. Then you have these creative outlets. You talked about sort of playing with G.I. Joe. You talk about going uh, to record stores, forming this this band, this sort of creative outlet, and and just being willing to experience whatever came to you. But then this transition then into uh, marriage and sort of this fiduciary responsibility and exiting that it, it feels like fairly quickly and, and founding artifact and it seems as if artifact in many ways is is a representation of a creative independent free spirit which has some very specific values about how you want it to be and you're not really i mean you're willing to compromise as necessary but you're not prepared to undercut it and i, I feel like there's some through lines to your life here well there's there are. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of things. One, like artifacts bigger than me now. And so like, it, that's a weird feeling when you create something and it's like, it goes beyond you as a person. And so in many ways, I have to have reverence towards that. And, and I've got to, I have to be respectful towards artifact and not shoot it full of holes just to see what happens. Um, and the, the, the through lines again, it's like, I'm a jack of many trades and a master of none. And so the unique thing about Artifact was like I had all these interests and these passions and um, and not a single one of them on their own could hold water. They just – they wouldn't stand alone. But when you take it and you look at it like a constellation, it actually had something. Like just all these bizarre things that I was – very long tail interests. But when you have enough of them – they create kind of uh, those idiosyncrasies create a unique thing that differentiates you from these other people that um, 
that, you know, and not to denigrate business-minded people, but they, they, they see like an opportunity and then they're like, okay, now we're going to just backfill this idea with a product or a service. Um, and it's more about the marketing of it or the vehicle of it or the delivery and, and the actual widget. What That seems to be like the last thing on their mind. And for me, it's everything. Like, and, and, and that's another challenge too. It's like, I had this field of dreams approach where like, I'm just going to build this incredible thing, this thing that I'm going to put everything into and people, if they, they're going to like it because the internet's a big place. And if I'm super interested in it, odds are there's going to be enough other people that are interested, interested in it and they'll find it through one way or another. Um, and that works to a degree, but now we're at this stage of growth where it's like, we have to be more proactive and we have to create marketing messages and send out these little beacons, you know, through all these, these different means to make sure people are aware of what we're doing and what we have. Um, and it's an evolution. Uh, it's less interesting to me. I, I, I'm not pushy. I don't, I don't like to push my product or what I'm doing onto people, but it's almost like those means are just, that's a, it's a bare requirement at this point to get through the static, uh, without contributing to it. That's the paradox. I love that you use the word idiosyncratic, which I think is a great word for you. One of your idiosyncrasies is a surprisingly robust, deep and expansive knowledge and expertise around military uniforms, clothing, history. I come from an era where like, I wanted to be a cowboy. I wanted to be a soldier. I wanted, you know, and that, and then, and it's hard because in 2019, like it's, uh, you know, there's a, there's, there's a sensitivity towards that. You know, when I was growing up, there wasn't a Columbine, you know, and, and stuff like that changed the way we, we think about adventure and America. Um, and I, and I understand it wholeheartedly. I have children of my own. And it's, it gives me pause when they pick up a stick in the yard and they make it into a gun. Like, it's like, what does that mean really? Um, but I have a, just my upbringing is a different approach to it. Like I just, um, for one reason or another, I just, just by interacting with that stuff and, and, uh, creating and living in this fantasy world of just like this idea of adventure, um, I became fascinated with the gear that was used and the, and the materials and, and it did inform my designs big time. I don't really talk about that as much anymore. Uh, I don't know why, but, but yeah, I mean, if you're looking at the details, like the bag that I have on the floor right now, I mean, I could totally nerd out on that and tell you that the fasteners are lift the dot fasteners that were used on World War II field gear, canteen flaps and ammo straps and uh, the rifle slings. Um, and my thought is if it worked for them to win World War II, then it's probably going to work for this field bag. And it just looks cool. And no one else is using it. So it's like, there's so many yeses. It's been, I think, really inspiring for many people in our community to see what has been possible as you have illustrated it. And I think people have really enjoyed following your progress and just really being inspired by that. So with that being said, what do you feel like is is ahead of you for the next five, ten years? I'm gonna I say this every year, but I'm gonna try and rein it in a little bit and uh, and focus on trying trying to be a little more efficient with my days and 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 with our overarching strategies so that 
we can just keep doing what we're doing, but doing it better. Um, and, and that's hard. I mean, artifact is the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life because it's required such a degree of focus that I'm not wired to be. I'm a very frenetic human being. Um, and it's oftentimes very exhausting, to be honest, to, 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 and it comes back to that reverence for artifact. Like, I don't, I, <laughs> I want to serve this and I want to see it through. And I know that there's a lot more growth that can happen with this. And I have people that are helping me that are really instrumental in, in, in the development of artifact and, and seeing, uh, how far we can climb this summit together. I've been in conversation with Chris Hughes, founder and owner of Artifact. Chris, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. my train of thought on that what was your initial question i i guess i got i got a little crestfallen about the idea of people stealing my intellectual property (laughs) (laughs) bring me back in that's the end of this week's show the magnificent marion fay helped produce the show lives is an executive production of squish talks I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life. 